Good morning. Would you pray with me? God, we gather around your heart this morning. And uh, it's, it's been in many ways a very difficult week. And I know that there are people in this room who are brokenhearted. And God, I want to lift them up to you. And I want to ask for you to shower their lives with healing. And I know this week there have been people who are, are feeling anxious and nervous. And they're, they're acting out in ways because of that anxiety and that nervousness and that fear. And I pray that through your word you would speak peace to their troubled souls. I pray for those of us who this week were called to walk beside people who are struggling, but who at the same time feel close to you and feel your strength and feel your goodness in our lives. I pray that you would, through your word, inspire us, help us to keep being strong, help us to to keep holding up our brothers and sisters who need our help. God, there are so many different kinds of weeks that are represented in this room right now, and you alone know what everybody is bringing with them to this place and to this moment. And so I just pray that through your Holy Spirit, you will speak to them, that you will speak to us, each one of us, what we need to hear the most. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Words are so... They're so powerful. You, you can move from being paralyzed to empowered if the right person looks you in the eye and says, I believe in you. You, you can move from demoralized to determined if somebody who you trust says to you in a moment of despair, I'm with you. You're not going to have to go through this alone. You can uncover a courage inside of you that you didn't know you had. If somebody you look up to says to you with all honesty and, and authenticity and sincerity that you'd be good at something, maybe something you never even tried before, but because this person says, I, I think you'd be great at that, suddenly you, you want to try. Words like, I love you, and we're going to have a little boy, and the test came back clear. Those aren't just words that communicate abstract ideas that you need to share with somebody else. They are words that carry within them the power to change your entire outlook on life. And we know this about words. We often forget this about words. And anything that has the power to profoundly bless life has the same amount of power to threaten life. We don't always use the words that we have and the power that those words carry within them for good. When I think about the, the potential that words have to attack somebody and tear them down, I think about a scene from a movie that was made all, all the way back in 1987. Planes, trains, and automobiles... 
I am not suggesting you go out to watch every scene of this movie. We're only going to watch one. But if, if you have seen the movie, or if you've heard something about it, it's basically the story of two men who are desperately trying to get home for Thanksgiving, and they have the worst travel luck you can imagine. And things just keep getting worse and worse and worse. And at some point, they find themselves in this dingy motel room in the middle of nowhere, and they're having to share it, and they don't want to be near each other anymore. And an argument breaks out, and... Neil, a character played by Steve Martin, gets going, and he can't stop. He can't stop talking. And John Candy is playing this shower ring curtain salesman who's an easy target, Del Griffith. And the argument that unfolds has always made me uncomfortable and has always opened my eyes to what words can do when we're not careful. So let's, let's watch this scene now. You're no saint. You've got a free cab. You've got a free room. Someone who'll listen to your boring stories. I mean, didn't you, didn't you notice on the plane when you started talking, eventually I started reading the vomit bag? Didn't that give you some sort of clue like, hey, maybe this guy's not enjoying it? You know, everything is not an anecdote. You have to discriminate. You choose things that are, that are funny or, or mildly amusing or interesting. You're a miracle. Your stories have none of that. They're not even amusing accidentally. I, I, I could tolerate any, any insurance seminar. For days, I could sit there and listen to them go on and on with a big smile on my face. They'd say, how can you stand it? And I'd say, because I've been with Del Griffith. I can take anything. You know what that'd say? That'd say, I know what you mean. The shower curtain ring guy. Whoa. It's, it's like going on a date with a chatty Kathy doll. I expect you to have a little string on your chest, you know, that I pull out and have to snap back. Except I wouldn't pull it out and snap it back. You would. And by the way, you know, when you're, when you're telling these little stories, here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. You want to hurt me? Go right ahead if it makes you feel any better. I'm an easy target. Yeah, you're right. I talk too much. I also listen too much. I could be a cold-hearted cynic like you. But I don't like to hurt people's feelings. Well, you think what you want about me. I'm not changing. I like, I like me. My wife likes me. My customers like me, because I'm the real article. What you see is what you get. Every time I, I see this argument, I just wish I could step into the scene and ask Steve Martin to slow down and just stop for a second. Right, take a breath, get some perspective, because he just keeps going and going and digging the hole deeper and deeper, and John Candy just lets him keep talking, and the damage that he's inflicting with his words, you, you know, because you, in your life, there, there's almost never any humor in a moment like this in real life, because you, you know that whether you're the one talking or you're the one being talked at, 
that once we get angry, we can start to say things to one another that we can't unsay. We can yell things that that other person is going to struggle for the rest of their lives to forget. We can inflict pain that may never fully heal this side of heaven. The, the thing about anger that is so dangerous, I think, is that once you're really angry, your emotions start to redline and you're going too fast for your own good. And by the, the time you realize you've gone way too far, it's almost always way too late. Jesus knows this about anger. He knows that we start talking and acting way too fast for our own good or anybody else's own good when we start to let anger carry us away. And so he talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5. We'll start in verse 21. He says, You've heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, Don't commit murder. And all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. If they say to their brother or sister, you idiot, they'll be in danger of being condemned by the governing council. And if they say, you fool, they'll be in danger of fiery hell. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First, make things right with your brother or sister and then come back and offer your gift. Be sure to make friends quickly with your opponents while you're with them on the way to court. Otherwise, they will haul you before the judge. The judge will turn you over to the officer of the court, and you'll be thrown into prison. I say to you in all seriousness that you won't get out of there until you've paid the very last penny. Now, over the past month or so, we have been listening to the words that Jesus speaks to us in the Sermon on the Mount. They are words that describe the Jesus way of life the best possible version of life. It's something we've been calling the good life. And Jesus starts that sermon. He makes it clear to us that the good life doesn't start with really anything that you or I do. It actually starts with what God does. It starts with, with promises that God keeps, these undeserved blessings. And they, they change us, they empower us to be different kinds of men and women in this world. He, he says we have this sacred destiny to, to become salt and light in a world that, that desperately needs to remember the things that matter most and what makes life worth living and who it is that, that we're supposed to be giving our lives to and trusting. And, and then just last week, we talked about that this, this God who creates us and longs for us to live this good life, he doesn't just expect us to, to guess what that life might look like. He gives us his word. He gives us his law, this lovingly, gift of, of advice from the creator of life about how to actually live this, this good life that, that we, we all want for ourselves and for the people we care about. So he, he now gets into very practical snapshots of what that good life is supposed to look like in your life. And he starts a place that I'm guessing most of us would rather he just ignore altogether. Now, he, he kind of sneaks up on us because of, of his opening 
phrase. He, he starts to quote the sixth commandment from the original Ten Commandments. Right? He says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. Now, I, I feel relatively comfortable assuming that just about no one in this room has ever committed cold-blooded murder of another person. So you, you, you hear this, and that means that the vast majority, right, of the people who hear these words would hear Jesus say, you shall not murder, and they, they just immediately decide this one isn't about them. They can sit this one out. It's for somebody else in the church to listen to. He expects that because that's kind of where he, he gets us. He says, you've heard it said you shall not murder. And you think, well, I haven't murdered. I'm okay. And then he says, but I say to you, anybody who gets angry and stays angry and is enraged at somebody else is running the risk of being in judgment. Anybody who says words to or about somebody else, their brother or sister, in a way that humiliates them, in a way that, that makes them feel shame, you're going to pay for that. Anybody who, who does something where, where they demean somebody else with their language, with their words, if, if you do something that, that tears somebody else down through how you talk to them, you're in danger of the fires of hell. I mean, it, it goes from us thinking, okay, this one's probably not about us, to wait a second, that might be about me, to wait a second, what could happen to me? Wait, 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 you've got to back this up, Jesus. What, what, what are you saying? What, what are you trying to get me to understand? While most of us, we want to focus on, and, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law on that day, they, they wanted to focus on, well, this idea that what God really cares about is us unfairly taking someone's life through physical violence. Jesus says that God cares about all the dark feelings and actions that lead to physical violence. God isn't only concerned about the extreme life-ending outcome that most of us never reach. God's also deeply concerned about the very first steps we take down that life-threatening pathway of prolonged anger. Why? Well, because, as all of us know, human life and human relationships can be destroyed by prolonged anger and words of humiliation, just as well as through murder. And we all, we all know this, not just because we've read about it or because we've heard someone else talk about it. We know because we've been in the midst of it. We've, we've either been the person speaking or we've been the one being spoken to. And we know that you don't have to actually kill somebody to hurt their life. To destroy their, their, their sense of, of joy in life. To ruin their outlook in life. All it takes are the right words spoken in the wrong spirit. And things start to unravel. And just like Steve Martin's character, we, we keep talking and talking and talking, and we realize that once we're really angry, it's hard to stop. And, and we end up saying things to people and about people that are vicious and heartless and judgmental. And, and we end up destroying somebody else 
I mean, there's a reason we have the phrase, you're dead to me. Right? We, we can actually kill somebody, at least as far as we're concerned, with, with words that we speak to them, without ever physically raising a, a finger against them. And Jesus wants us to understand. We may think that we're, we're getting away with murder in our hearts, but we're not. God sees what you think and what you feel about somebody else. And if you hate somebody else because of something that's happened, if, if, you, if you have thoughts about, if not you somehow harming them and getting away with it, something horrible happening to them, someone else harming them and getting away with it, we, we all have these dark places in our hearts that we don't, we don't want to admit, but we never go through those experiences and have the sense that God would not, not, not know, that, that God wouldn't notice that you're, you're wrestling with that. And that you're treating somebody in ways, well, that destroy, destroy life. Now, I feel like I, I do want to take a moment here to say that not, not all anger is bad. The original words that are used here describe not a moment of anger, not a flash of anger, but ongoing anger, grudge-holding anger, anger that you, you not only feel or experience, but you make friends with, that you invite to move in and stay, anger that you feed and nurture until it becomes this dark and dangerous thing inside of your soul that you have towards somebody else from that point on. There's a difference we all know it, but Scripture talks about this difference between suddenly getting angry and then choosing to stay angry. Author Glenn Stason helpfully points out that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave no command not to be angry. He commands that we not remain angry. The key step is to work on figuring out why we're angry. Anger is a useful diagnostic tool. It signals to us that something is wrong. It's a sixth sense for sniffing out injustice in our community. So what, what Stason's saying, and, and I, I think this is absolutely borne out through all of Scripture, is that, that when we first feel that flash of anger, you and I need to stop and slow down, because again, anger speeds everything up to stop and slow down and ask, why are we feeling that way? Why are we reacting that way? Is someone being unfair to somebody else? Is someone in power victimizing someone who's powerless? Is someone doing something where they're taking advantage of the situation and, and hurting somebody else? If that's the reason you're, you're feeling anger, you need to know that that's the same kind of stuff that makes God angry over and over and over again in Scripture. When things aren't fair, when things aren't right, God gets angry. And as people of God, when we can see clearly that somebody is victimizing somebody else, we better get involved. And in that moment, we need to know that, that the response to that anger is not to cultivate a, a space in our heart for it. It's to act, to carefully, intentionally do something. I mean, we, we want to be people who, who partner with God. Now, now that kind of anger, I, I need you to know, it has the potential to create a better world instead of just destroying somebody you don't like. 
We shouldn't ignore it. We, we shouldn't say, no, 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 you, you don't need to worry about that. It, it'll all just get better on its own. No, things don't ever get better on their own. Either God intervenes or God intervenes through us. That's how things get better. And we have to pay attention to what we're going through, what we're feeling. If somebody needs help and, and you're stirred with compassion, this is one of the things I love the most about Jesus' example. Every time he feels compassion for somebody, the word that is used to describe that is he's angry at what's happening to them. It's not just pity. It's not just the little feeling in his heart about, oh, I wish this was a little bit different. He gets angry at the illness that's attacking them. He gets angry at the person who's victimizing them. He gets angry that the world is so broken that this is what happens to people. Not all anger is bad. And we need to ask ourselves the kind of anger we're going through. Is it the kind of anger that God participates in? And can we partner with God in doing something about it? But the reality is the kind of anger that you and I feel most often, that the anger that we feel out of peevishness and pettiness, that's never right. It's, it's never worth finding a way to, to do something with it. When you get angry and you stay angry because you aren't being treated the way you want to be treated no matter what, when you get angry and you stay angry because you're not getting your way, you're headed in the wrong direction and you're headed there faster than you think. We have all seen it unfold more than we want to admit it. We all have friends in our lives who have some, some grudge that they're struggling with and no matter how often you talk to them about it, they're defensive and they, they don't want to talk about it and they don't want to deal with it and they tell you that, that you don't have a right to talk to them about it. This is one of, I think, the key struggles we have in, in our modern faith journeys, and that is that we decide that there's all kinds of things in our spiritual journeys that are private. There is no sense in anywhere in Scripture that your faith journey is private. It's personal, but it's not private. Private means you don't get to call me to something more. So don't talk to me about it. The two things I have discovered time and again in Christian people's lives that we would rather keep private are our money and grudges that we're holding. And if the person keeps talking, we'll, we'll just say th this really sophisticated argument, you're not perfect either. Right? You... You've got your own problems, so don't start talking to me about my problems. Because that's how we're all going to be transformed to the image of Christ, right? Is if we all keep telling each other we can't talk about it because we're all not perfect yet. You feel that. You feel that defensiveness when you talk to somebody. I, I, you know, just any, any sort of scenario. I mean, I've, I've talked to countless people that just, you, you talk about, okay, what does grace actually mean in your life? You got this thing, this person offended you years ago. You're not even sure if that person still remembers offending you years ago, and you can't let it go. Your discipleship depends on you letting it go. My discipleship, it depends on me letting it go. I, 
there's all kinds of scenarios. I, I remember one, they were talking to this guy, and he was convinced that 13 years ago, earlier, his brother said he couldn't go to his wedding because he had the flu. But this guy was certain that the reason his brother didn't go to his wedding was because he didn't like the woman he was marrying. And I said, well, how did you know that? And he said, well, who gets the flu on just that day? <laughs> and he goes, just trust me. I mean, we're, we're at Thanksgiving and Christmas. I mean, he's there, but he's not very warm to us. I mean, I, I could tell he can't stand my wife. Just ask my wife. And I said, well, are you the one telling her that he doesn't like her? And does he know? Just don't, don't, don't. You don't understand. It's been 13 years. And I didn't even know this other guy. And I felt sorry for him. You know, because I thought this is, this could all just be a misunderstanding. And because this guy just can't let it go. And it's so easy, right, to hear a story like that and shake your head and think, man, that guy needs to get a life. But we've all got our list. Right? Because we, we aren't perfect. We, we've got our lists. We struggle. And we know that anger that we hold on to towards somebody else, it, it soon enough, it has a hold on us. And it's a stranglehold. It starts to take on a life of its own. And it has the power to ruin not only our life, but the lives of other people we're angry at. And pretty soon, they, they couldn't do anything to fix it, even if they tried, because we wouldn't let them. Because I have found this to be true with many people in their lives, that if something significant happens between them and somebody else, and they can figure out how to totally blame that somebody else, well, they fall in twisted love with telling that story and getting to say, this person did this to me and hurt me and I'm a victim and I need you to feel sorry for me about what happened 13, 14, 15, 16 years ago. Now, I, I want to say, I say this all the time when I talk about forgiveness and reconciliation, I am not trying to oversimplify all the different ways people hurt each other and I am not talking about abuse or, or anything like that and telling you you need to walk straight out here and try to be best friends with somebody who physically or sexually or otherwise hurts you. I'm talking about the vast majority of the people in this room who have a grudge against somebody else, and the only reason that we won't reconcile with them is our own stubbornness and pride. Now, I know there are people in this church and in this auditorium right now who have the gift of forgiveness and grace, and what we need to do is pay attention to those people. We need to learn from those people. Because most of us have to work really hard at not just apologizing, but receiving apologies. And figuring out what it's going to look like for forgiveness to be less about rewriting a past event and more about writing a redeemed future with somebody else. This this dark, deformed version of life where we're angry at somebody and we won't let it go, it has nothing in common with the good life that we were created to enjoy. It has nothing in common with this, this good life that Jesus is talking about. Because while you and I most certainly are going to have to face, if you haven't already, you're for sure going to have to face people who offend you and insult you and frustrate you, God wants us to reach a place where we value our relationships over our rights. Can you imagine reaching that place in your heart where you value relationships over your rights? I mean, can you think 
of how hard that would be on one hand, and, and on the other hand, what kind of impact we could make in the world if, if we would try. I mean, in, in some ways it seems impossible. And on, on, in another way, I think, what about all the possibilities that would suddenly be available to every single one of us if we would just decide there has to be a better way than this. There, there has to be a different way forward than getting even. There has to be a different way of, of relating to somebody where if, if we in any way feel like things are going and we don't like it or, or we've, we've been treated in a way that, that we feel like, well, I'm just not going to put up with this anymore. What, what if we just decided that the relationship mattered more than our rights? New Testament theologian Stanley Hauerwas says, we should be ready to suffer a wrong rather than act against another. For nothing less is at stake than Christ's followers offering the world an alternative to the world's vengeance and violence. If such an alternative community doesn't exist, then unbelievers will have no way to know God's peace. Let those words seek in for a minute. We should be ready to suffer a wrong rather than act against another. That's what Jesus is saying. In, in a world where people demand their personal rights through clenched teeth, in a world where people give themselves permission to attack anyone they think has wronged them in any way, no matter how small, Jesus wants us to value our relationships more than we value our rights. And he doesn't just stop there. Jesus wants us to see that good relationships, it's not just more important than, than our rights. Good relationships are our only way to be made right. That good relationships with others are our only way to be in a good relationship with God. In the text we read this morning, Jesus gives us two snapshots of what this might look like in real life. One of them he talks about, uh, one that I, that I hope is not something you've had to get involved in before, but he says that if somebody's going to sue you, you need to try to, to catch them on the way to court and befriend them and make peace with them so that things don't get even more out of hand. Now, I'd like to say, you, to say to you that I have never uh, experienced a, a situation where two people of faith are taking each other to court, but I have, and I have a feeling that we'll hear, he'll hear stories like that again in our lives. And he says, look, this, it, it shouldn't take this. Find a way to make things right. But then he goes to, to an image I think most of us definitely, we, we don't just hear about this, we have experienced this. He says, if you go to worship and you realize when you're at worship that there's someone in your life that has something against you, this is how God sees you. If, if you're at worship and you realize that there's a broken relationship in your life and, and at least half of it is your fault, then stop what you're doing, find that person, and make peace. And then come back and make your offering. Right, so in, in other words, before we come here and try to sing praises, if there's somebody in your life where you have a broken relationship with them, and it's at least half your fault, stop what you're doing and go and reach out to them, and apologize to them, and do what you can 
to fix the relationship. Now, this is always complicated and difficult because the other person may decide they don't want to make peace. They, they may not want to hear your apology. They may not want to, you know, have some sort of future together. And you, you can't force all of that to happen. Jesus isn't saying that. He's assuming, first of all, that you, you wouldn't hold something against somebody else and then try to come to worship. So this isn't, Jesus here isn't talking about whether or not you're holding a grudge. He assumes disciples don't hold grudges. But he knows that there are situations where somebody that a disciple, you know, has a friend or a family member or somebody, a co-worker, that there's a chance that they've lashed out in anger at some point. They've said something. They've done something. And they need to go and they need to make it right. I need to go and make it right. You need to go and make it right. Now, brothers and sisters, I think this is really challenging. In fact, I think this is one of the first places in the Sermon on the Mount where we want to believe that Jesus is being dramatic. And he's just using a figure of speech. I don't know where we get the sense that Jesus doesn't mean exactly what he says directly here. I don't, I don't know why, why we want to try to separate our, our journey of forgiving other people from our ability to receive God's ongoing forgiveness of us. And I think what Jesus is trying to get us to understand is that, that, that broken relationships, the ones where we're holding somebody at arm's length to punish them, or, or they're holding us at arm's length because of how we've treated them, those kinds of damaged relationships, they also create a kind of divine distance. They end up pushing us farther and farther away from the heart of God. And it, it's no use for us to come to church and sing and pray about love and joy and peace if we are actively denying those same things to somebody else in our life who desperately needs it. It's only when we're ready to try to figure out how we're going to hold somebody close again that we're, we're actually understanding what it means for God to keep holding on to us and holding us close. Our, our commitment to the way of Jesus isn't something that we prove on Sunday mornings. Our commitment to the way of Jesus is something we prove every single day of the week and how we treat the people who fail us and, and hurt us and still need us to love them anyway. We come to worship, brothers and sisters, we, we, we come to worship not just to tell one single amazing story of how God on the cross reconciled us to himself. We come to, to tell that story, but we also come to tell new amazing stories of all the ways that Christ is still hard at work reconciling us not only to himself, but to one another through the cross. Shouldn't we have new stories every week we could tell? of how the cross not only heals our relationship with God, but how it is healing our relationship with the people in our lives who sometimes it feels like are trying to kill us. God wants us to care more about our relationships than our rights, and he wants us to know that we cannot have a good relationship with him while we refuse to try to work towards good relationships with each other. This is the good life. This is the Jesus way of life. And it's, 
it's not just good, it's better than any other way of life you can imagine, but it, it isn't easy. It's not something that anyone else can force you to try to live on your own. You're going to have to willingly open your heart and your soul to trusting that Jesus really knows what he's talking about here and then trying to partner with God in living in this way. And while we might want to jump past this, this opening sermon, this, this opening snapshot that Jesus gives us in this, this larger message he's preaching, but it turns out that the first step into living the good life is you and I learning how to control our anger before it controls us. It's the kind of person I want to be. It's, it's the kind of, of father and, and husband and friend and son I want to be. It's, it's the kind of, of person I want you to be. It's the kind of church I want this church to be. If the world is ever going to stop tearing itself apart through vengeance and violence, it has to see a different way of life lived out. It has to see a different example. And we have been called to be that example. No excuses. No deciding it's, it's, it's private and we can't talk about it. No deciding that, that it's always somebody else who's got the problem. It starts with me, and it starts with you submitting to the way of Jesus. Are we willing to do that or not? Or do we think we know better still? We're going to sing together now, and as we do, a few shepherding couples will be just outside these double doors to receive you and pray with you and talk with you. And so if you came this morning at all with any burden or a blessing that you want to talk about or pray about, if you want to learn more about our church family, if you want to learn more about what it means to be a Christ follower, they can answer all of your questions. Go to them as together we stand and sing.